0: Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In her new book, Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage, Anne Lamott explores the tough questions that many of us are grappling with. How can we recapture the confidence we once had as we stumble through the dark times that seem increasingly bleak? As bad news piles up from climate crises to daily assaults on civility, how can we cope? Where, she asks, do we start to get our world and joy and hope and our faith in life itself back? with our sore feet, hearing loss, stiff fingers, poor digestion, stunned minds, broken hearts. We begin, Lamott says, by accepting our flaws and embracing our humanity. Yes, these are times of great illness and distress, she says, yet the center may just hold. Anne Lamott is the author of the New York Times bestsellers Hallelujah Anyway, Help, Thanks, Wow, Small Victories, Some Assembly Required, Grace Eventually, Bird by Bird and Operating Instructions, among others, She's also the author of seven novels, including Perfect Birds and Rosie, a past recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, and an inductee into the California Hall of Fame. She lives in Northern California, and this conversation was first broadcast in March. Well, first, it's not just marketing materials. I think uh, for many people, the sentence, the new Anne Lamott, is accompanied by an exclamation point. Um... And uh, I wonder what you would, what, what do you try to provide people? What do you think people are looking for? They're, you know, eagerly awaiting your, your next book, usually.
1: Well, I think that I write so much about hope, that if people get the book on a bad day, I think that um, they're looking for just reasons to hope um, in the midst of of this kind of endless bad news of the last year. And before that, you know, the you and climate change reports and Australia on fire and, and then California on fire and where I live. And, um, it's easy to feel really defeated. In fact, that's how I ended up writing *Dust Night, Dawn, was that two? Uh, the last book I wrote, the subtitle was um, Thoughts on Hope, although I ri- originally wanted to call the book Doomed, <laughs> Thoughts on Hope, because I, <laughs> the world is just so scary, but the publisher didn't think that was going to be a big seller, so... Um, but everywhere I went on book tour, people felt so scared and sad and angry and didn 't have any way, anything to do with these feelings um, that um, would decrease the, this defeatedness and so I just started writing a book on where I, on renewal the subtitles on revival and courage But it's really on restoration and renewal there 's a great um, line in I think it 's in Proverbs in the Hebrew Bible, and it says that God will restore what the locusts have taken away. And that was sort of the theme of this book, is that how how are we restored? How can we actually think that all that's been taken away will be restored? And so, you know... That's what I set out to write. So I think when people think there's a new book by me, they also think that I'm pretty funny. You know, even my son thinks I'm marginally funny on a good day. And, um, and that laughter is not only carbonated holiness, but as Trevor Noah said recently, when you're laughing with someone, you know you're sharing something. And I think that's such a great feeling for a, um, a writer and her audience to just share a laugh together. And it changes us you know molecularly to to laugh a little,
0: and that uh, I guess as present, I guess we experience that right even in <laughs> doom and gloom and and as since your last book has gotten even darker right um but but yeah. that that's a natural part of us if we let it out, is it the laughter and
1: well, I think that if we have um A couple of cool friends in the world, I've always maintained that that is the secret of life to getting through anything is to just have a couple of cool friends and maybe a younger brother or, you know, maybe a random sister or whatever. But if there are a couple people you can just tell anything to that, you know, how enraged you are that day or how you absolutely will never forgive aunt blanche or how um or whatever and the person just nods and they say you know what i just totally get it (laughs) Mm -hmm. and then they tell their version of that lack of forgiveness or that feeling really victimized and self-righteous and it makes you laugh and then that you're laughing and then you're laughing together and uh, it's just like medicine so um I mean, things just have been since I finished the book a year ago. Absolutely finished it, even the edit of it. Uh, the pandemic broke forth, so I it didn't. It turned out, I hadn't quite finished the book, and I went back and. Um, but the thing is that all of these things hold true for coming through this pandemic together, and it really has been about a year on the nose since I think San Francisco Cisco was shut down early March. And, um, and so, we, you know, you do the next right thing. You tell people how you're really feeling. You rely on a couple of friends. You, Of course, for me, um, if I have a, a good book in front of me, I'm home free. <laughs> if I have a book that I'm loving that I'm going to crawl in bed with that night, then the world really can't tear me down too far. And um, we laugh together. We, we turn to funny things. We binge on funny shows. We... Um, we get together um, from six feet apart wearing our masks and we make the universal sign of the hug you know arms crossed and hugging from six or ten feet away and we say i'm glad to see you and they say i'm so glad to see you and then that is part of the solution and now of course with and i'm older than you are um and so i got both of my vaccines i got the second one a few days ago my husband got his um, Friday. And, and, and that is definitely, I'll tell you for listeners who haven't gotten their vaccines, you will soon. Don't give up. Even if you're signed up a couple places, you'll get a call before your appointment and they'll say, we have extra here. Can you be here in 45 minutes? And, um, don't give up and you will, and you will, you are going to be safe. We're going to help keep you safe. And, um, that boy did that change my uh, perspective more than just about anything I can think of. It was my first vaccination shot. I didn't, I felt like I didn't even need a car to get home from the hospital. You know, I could just fly home. So, <laughs> you know, but every day, if you look around, it's like this guy, uh, forgot his name, he was a priest who helped Bill Wilson get Alcoholics Anonymous off the ground in 1935. Uh, he was not an alcoholic, but he said to Bill, Sometimes I think that heaven is just a new pair of glasses, and um, and I love that line so much because you know the world is a messy place and your glasses get very smudged by you know this endless data stream and this endless amount of change and bad news and you know people going so hungry in this country and all over the world. But then if you put your new pair of glasses on, you, first of all you see it's spring again, and that. The daffodils are out, which are always, uh, I don't know if they're in Utah, but they are here. And they're such a hilarious little sight gag, you know, with those gigantic noses and those bright colors. And, and grass is breaking through the rocky dirt. And grasses, little green shoots are breaking through concrete again. And so if you put the as an act of, as a radical act, if you intentionally put on your good pair of glasses, you see a couple things. You see beauty all around you if you look up and around and you see people that you could actually help who, uh, you, you know, you, you get a link to a food pantry in Houston. You get a link to a food pantry in Peru and you send them $25 or you do some anonymous loving things for people. You get really happy again.
0: That's and that's something you write about. It's kind of a it's a theme through through the books through your books. Um, what what does that do? Makes you happy again? What uh, how does that make you happy again? Serving.
1: Well, if you want to do a loving thing, if you want to have loving feelings, which for me is what heaven is like, to just for my heart to be really warm and open and compassionate and just tender instead of closed off, you you take the action. You know, figure it out is not a good slogan. Um, you take the action, and then the insight follows. So you do a bunch of loving things. You call or you go visit the aunt at the uh, in the parking lot at the. Care facility, you know, and you and you and you swing by Safeway on the way there, and you buy her an orchid, even though she's not going to be able to water it, to remember to water it, and uh, that's not your business, you know, not your, not your circus, not your monkey. Your business is to spread some love and hope. So you bring the orchid to your aunt, and um, it fills her with hope and love, and then there's hope and love in the environment because you brought it. And, uh, and you get to kind of splash around in it for a little while. And it's just my experience. I've been sober 35 years, since I was 32, and I thought that that the way that you filled up these Swiss cheese holes in your soul and yourself was by getting more, by accomplishing more, by being more, more this, more respected, more acclaimed, more, you know. And it turned out... That it was an inside job all along, and that you, uh, you fill up, uh, paradoxically, by giving away, by being of service, by, by, you know, you go to the, you go to the St. We have a St. Vincent de Paul place here where they feed several hundred people even during the pandemic a day. And you either go there if, if if it's safe for you to be there, and you and you dole out food and you look each person in the eye and you say, "How are you doing? I'm so glad to see you." And if it's not safe for you to be there, if you have, if you're immunocompromised or or you know the county isn't allowing it, you go by. Um, andronicos, and you fill up two bags with canned goods and boxed goods and you go to the outdoor um, pantry over in the canal where they have an extremely heightened um, rate of, of um, infection because it's where all the service workers are and all the people who can't not work during the quarantine. And you know what? You do what's possible, But once again, figure it out is not a good slogan. So if you are driving around dropping off bags of really delicious, nutritious canned foods, or you're, you're bringing, you know, one thing I did last week, I was so cranky. I felt like I was really, I said to my husband, I feel so crunchy today. And I went to the, our little storage bin, and we have blankets here that we don't use. There are so many blankets on every bed, and um, but we might have spent good money for them, or we really loved them once. We don't use them, and so we washed them all. We folded them up. I put a ribbon around one of them, and I took them to Goodwill, which is um, about forty-five minutes away, where they still have a drop-off. And I did not try to figure out how I feel about Goodwill. I did not. I don't try to figure out how I feel about, you know, the Red Cross and whether or not the right amount of money goes to those suffering. I just give. That's what my business is. And so when I dropped off all these really good blankets, part of me wanted to snatch them back, you know, because mm-hmm. they still had years of use in them. But you know what? It's been a very cold, very dark winter. Mm-hmm. Oh, and-, and I got so happy that day.
0: Uh, yeah, that's, that's a wonderful example. You're listening to Access U-Time, Tom Williams, and we're talking with uh, the writer Anne Lamott. She's the author of New York Times bestsellers, Hallelujah Anyway, Help, Thanks, Wow, Some Assembly Required, Grace Eventually, Operating Instructions. The uh, newest book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. Later in this conversation, uh, Anne Lamott uh, talks about uh, the hope she has. Uh, she's quite hopeful about bridging the uh, seemingly increasingly increasing divides. We'll get to that and much else. Some great stories uh, coming up in this conversation with Anne Lamott, and uh, the rest of the conversation follows this break.
2: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Summerfest Arts Fair in Logan. Supporting the arts in northern Utah and the region, presenting 165 artist booths, 38 performing groups, and 24 food vendors, and a plain air art competition. More information at LoganSummerFest.com.
0: Are you looking for a way to make your nonprofit organization more visible to our statewide community? Well, we'd love to support your events on our UPR community calendar. Head to
3: upr.org. Click on the community calendar tab, and there you can find the submission link. We highlight
0: events including workshops, theater, art shows, dances, lectures, virtual events, and more. Again, you can just go to the community calendar tab on upr.org
3: to submit your event. Next
2: time on The polls. Adnan Khan could picture what was happening inside of prisons as the coronavirus spread and people were getting sick.
3: You start yelling or you have your cellmate yell, man down, man down.
2: And he also knew that healthcare and prison are often at odds.
3: Ultimately, the people that make the decisions are correctional staff.
2: Incarceration, health and the lasting impact.
0: Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we walk through the gate of summer by visiting three cooks in three very different parts of the country to see what June
4: tastes like for them. We'll hear about the shrimp of coastal Georgia, the salmon of Alaska, the preserves of Appalachia, and more. Coming up on The Splendid Table.
0: Tune in Sunday at noon here on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are presenting again a uh, conversation from March with the writer Anne Lamott. She's the author of many New York Times bestsellers. Uh, she lives in Northern California, and uh, the newest book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage, and this conversation was first broadcast in March. I just want to read this paragraph. This is from the uh, the section of the book, uh, Lunch Money Faith. Uh, you talk about a friend. Uh, you said, she told me not long ago, I'm not suicidal, but sometimes I wish I was dead. And then you go on to say, this is the point beyond exhaustion, when you can't see how you'll ever fill up again. And then she does, through what she calls Lunch Money Faith. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, tell me about Lunch Money Faith.
1: Well, her son was dying. She's um, her her son just died six weeks ago, but he'd been sick. He was twenty three. He'd been sick for, um, thirteen years with a brain cancer, and um, and she taught me that. And I would say, "Are you okay? Are you okay?" All the you know all these years and months, and she'd say, "The other part of um." in that chapter that you read from, is that she said, I keep having to re, uh, reimagine what okay means. And she said, like, one day she said, I mentioned this in the book, my son is making art with people who really love him. You know, he's, he's making art with a group of other kids with um, brain injury, with people who really love them. And so, yeah, I'm okay. And um, that was such a profound idea that you changed the goal po- goalposts of okay. And, um, but lunch money faith means that you got exactly the right amount. <laughs> you know, and there's not, you know you get, when I was a child, when I was coming up, it was $0.50 cents for a hot dog, a bag of chips, and these orange drinks that were so cold and so delicious. And you always got $0.50. Cents. Like, that's what it cost. Your parents didn't give you $0.80 cents or 30 they gave you enough and the exact right amount. So that's what she meant by lunch money faith was that in in spite of it all and, and you know, the odds being so against that family, they had enough faith every day. They had enough um, to feel safe and um, tended to and even confident that they'd be provided for. Mm.
0: Uh, just over the page, um, of course there are nuggets all over here, I just wanted... Um I'll just read this. This is a paragraph. Uh, so you were, uh, you say, a few weeks after your wedding. And by the way, um, married first time, right, a uh, couple of years ago? Right. Congratulations. Two years ago. Three, Two, I got yeah. married
1: three days after um, I got my first Social Security check.
0: <laughs> yeah, wonderful. Well, <laughs> oh, congratulations. Yeah. That's great. Thank um, you. Uh, so uh, th- this, uh, at this point, uh, you're at a spiritual retreat in Maui. You said you were very, very tired. I'll just read this. I did the only thing yeah. I know how to do. I said it. I told the truth. I went and found Neil, your husband, and uh, even though I worried he'd have buyer's remorse, I told him I cried. 90% of the time, this is the solution. Tell it. Cry if you can. And if you can't, sit in a dejected posture, (laughs) hunched over, and stay with this for a while. It'll shift. It'll become less acute. So tell it. Cry if you can. I guess that's uh, the advice.
1: Yeah, that you... uh you say it out loud, you stop faking it, you stop pretending that everything's okay. This was, a, I was teaching at this uh, workshop, this conference in Maui, the world's most beautiful, beautiful place, and yet I was exhausted. I'd been teaching for too long. I'd, um... I mean, too many days in a row, and I was just in extreme despair, and it was scary. I was in my hotel room. I write about this in *Dust Night, Dawn, and I was just thinking about swimming out to sea because I just was so pooped. And um, But, you know, there's a great acronym in the recovery movement for fear. Um, some of them are, uh, you know, like, forget everything's all right or... Um, uh, forget everything and run but the one i love is the frantic effort to appear recovered mm-hmm. and when i need to make help everybody see that i'm just doing just fine not having any problems i have all the energy in the world i could teach till the cows come home blah 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 i'm doomed because i'm i'm not in truth i'm not in reality and if i tell someone like sometimes my friend janine whose son died. She'll call or I'll call her, and we'll say, I hate everyone, and I hate all of life. And the other one will say, oh, I'm so glad you called. I felt that way on um, Sunday. Well, I think we need to go to Target. Or I think we need to go overeat. We need to go get some Safeway carrot cake. And, um, but if, and if I just tell the truth, if I don't have that frantic effort to appear recovered and doing just fine, thank you, then there's hope and there's help. And somebody might say, oh, great, what, what, we, what, can, what do you need? Can I bring you a lovely cup of tea? Do you want to go um, waste a whole ton of, want to go to a bookstore with me? You know, which is like bookstores are basically like church, and um, and then if you just tell the truth, then you can be helped. You can be, you can get gentle and loving company, and you may even get in a few laughs together.
0: By the way, uh, speaking of your marriage, I, I love the passage you, you recount an experience where you've gone to, I think, give a talk, and uh, then your flight's delayed and delayed again. Um, you, you. This is a couple of months, I think, after you're married. You say, "I thought being newly married meant you were exuberant most of the time, even if things went bad." Uh, so you call a friend, and and uh, you know unload, and uh, and she says, "Oh, you're right on schedule."
1: Yeah, exactly. And she said the most amazing thing. She said, "I think you've forgotten that Neil is your friend." It hadn't occurred to me because all that when I wrote that section it 's the very first chapter in the book i had I was really um, crunchy and cranky with him because I was down at the San Diego airport and he was not responding to my predicament and all the flight delays appropriately and and then he hadn 't texted and sympathetically enough and and I called my friend. I did what I've learned to do since I got sober, which was pick up the 200-pound phone and call someone, call a really safe person. And and she said, I think you've forgotten that he's your friend. I literally smited or smote my own forehead <laughs> at the airport after four flight delays, including one overnight, and I forgot. And I went, oh, right. <laughs> oh, now I remember. And that's why I married him. And... um and then I got really happy again.
0: Yeah. Uh, by the way, you have a, you know, I guess this is probably what you told your friend, a whole list of complaints at that time. What uh, My favorite really resonates. Uh, you say, when I'm explaining my position, he tilts his head in a domineering male way. And if you read between the lines, <laughs> you can tell he's thinking, you can't possibly think that. This is one of your your complaints.
1: Because if you thought that, it would be so stupid that (laughs) I wouldn't even be able to believe that we were married. But, uh, yeah. And also, you know, it's funny because we've been in quarantine. when, When we... When I agreed to get married, i didn't expect to be in a quarantine with him for a year you know and um and so some day a lot of the time it's just wonderful and we really do have fun and he works hard and and he's in his office a lot, and we hike most days and um but then and and so I'm very grateful and then some days the sound of him chewing bacon will make me just crazy and i'll feel like nuts i'll feel like it's so awful that protestants can't get annulments <laughs> and maybe i'll switch to Catholic. i'll convert so i can annul, get an annulment because i can't do the bacon with him and uh you know it's so funny it's just relationships are hard and quarantine is hard and uh but the whole book dusk night dawn is about that this is hard stuff i mean Turning climate change around, uh, helping somebody, helping a young person in your family who's going down the tubes or down a very dark road, getting off alcohol or booze or eating disorder, it's hard. But you know what? We're good at hard. We just have to stop pretending it's easier or shaming ourselves because um, we're finding it tough. And, and it is tough, and you just do the next right thing. You know, I wrote a whole book on writing, bird by bird, that you do it bird by bird. You do it one small section at a time, one small action at a time. That's how you write a whole book, is a passage at a time, a memory at a time. And you let yourself do it really badly. But so that is true of, of all the stuff that we do is hard. You do the next right thing. You take. I remember when I first got sober because I was raised by atheists and intellectuals, and I'm grateful for that because I became a great reader, a voracious reader, but it wasn't really very helpful in any other ways. But... um, uh, we believed that, you, that there were codes you broke and that you could figure things out and that we sort of, my parents worshipped the, the God of the New York Times, you know, and every morning it's like we bowed down before the New York Times when we were six and seven years old. And, um, and it never really helped anyone in my family, this intellectual striving and, um, and figuring it out. Like when I was still drinking, I, um, I just kept thinking there was a code I could break. I figured it out, so I could only drink four or five drinks a night. I was also bulimic. I believe there was a code I could figure out where I could um, be at an okay weight, eat what I like, but not have this horrible, scary secret. And you know what someone said, I started to say 35 years ago, they said, you take the action, and then the insight follows. Well, for me, because I'm pretty anxious. I'm a lot more anxious than the average bear. And I was, I sort of came to earth this way. And I'm, um, you know, I'm kind of worried. And I'm just the way I am. Uh, the action for me is all, almost always to do something that's kind of radical self-care, because I'm very good at taking care of everyone else. You know, I was in my family, I was sort of like the flight attendant to the family like I could do mixed drinks for people when I was seven and I had a little clipboard I had a older brother and a younger brother i still do and parents who were in a very unhappy marriage and i thought it was my responsibility to help everybody feel better about their lives you know i had a caseload when i weighed 50 pounds so um that has been it's been a long road back to heal from that belief that i'm not only i'm responsible for their unhappiness and i'm also responsible to try to help them get happier and the, and the, the women who helped me get sober said No, you take an action to taking care of your own self, you go for a hike, or you take a long hot bath, or you just put on clothes that you feel really pretty in, you put put on your very favorite blouse and some really cute silly socks and then or you put on a little lipstick you know joy is the best medicine the best makeup you get happy and then you look pretty and then you feel better about everything but that was not what i was raised on that that, that the idea that you did gentle loving things both for yourself and for other people and uh, and like jesus you forgive the unforgivable including yourself and little by little you start to Get peace of mind, and you start to really enjoy being here because you realize you're not in charge of helping everybody um, make better decisions for their life. Like, this is the last thing. I'm sorry to go on so long, but I went to India a few years ago. (laughs) It's so chaotic. I mean, I loved it more than anywhere else I've ever been, but it is so disorganized. You know, it's a billion and a half people, and I found with my Western um, thinking, I had so many good ideas on how everybody could get better organized. You know, and I was sorry I hadn't brought my clipboard and my post-its because I could get small groups of women together, and we would. And I had to bust myself and say, Annie, stop. You know, India is a song that never ends. They've done fine without you for 5,000 years, and I think they'll be okay when you leave. But at the same time, take the action and the insight follow. So I left behind every single thing I had brought except for the clothing I'd wear on the plane because when all else fails, if you do loving things, you get loving feelings. I left two pairs of shoes. I left my very favorite gap blouse. I left everything to people on the street. So, you know, all truth is paradox. So that's kind of what I know about everything.
0: Yeah, very good. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. And uh, we'll learn uh, more in the next segment about what Ed Lamont knows. Uh, hope you're enjoying the conversation. The new book is Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage. Anne Lamott is author of New York Times bestsellers, Hallelujah Anyway, Help, Thanks, Wow, Some Assembly Required, Grace, Eventually, Operating Instructions, and uh, many others. The latest is called Dust Night Dawn, as I said, and we'll have more following this break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah State University MBA, offering opportunities to achieve new goals and further careers in the new year. The fall semester application deadline is June 15th. Information can be found at huntsmanmba.com. Get ready to bug out at the first annual Cache Valley Monarchs and Other Winged Wonders Festival,
4: Thursday, June 24th at 4 p.m. until dusk at the Heritage Park in Nibley.
0: UPR will be there for a special Utah storytelling project. Where you can share your stories about caring for, observing, and preserving habitat for butterflies and fireflies.
4: Look for the white UPR tent and sign up to record your story, poem, or song in celebration
0: of our winged wonders. See you on Thursday, June 24th. On the next Putumayo World
4: Music Hour,
3: we'll learn about that uniquely French style chanson and hear young artists from the Nouvelle Seine who have revived this classic sound and given it a new contemporary flavor. Dan Storper.
1: And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for a musical visit to Paris on the next Putumayo World
3: Music Hour. Join us Thursday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio.
4: I'm Dr. Susan Madsen, founding director of the Utah Women and Leadership Project at Utah State University. In partnership with Utah Public Radio, we are relaunching and expanding our Utah Women and Leadership podcast series. We'll share research and resources about topics like imposter syndrome, gender and race, the impact of COVID-19 on Utah women and work, body image challenges, and more. Listen at utwomen.org or on your favorite podcast app. Two
2: new episodes out now from the Utah Women and Leadership podcast series, one on gender and race and the other on imposter syndrome and perfectionism. You can listen now at utwomen.org or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: In her newest book, Dusk Night Dawn on Revival and Courage, Anne Lamott explores the tough questions many of us are grappling with. How can we recapture the confidence we once had as we stumble through the dark times that seem increasingly bleak? As bad news piles up, from climate crises to daily assaults on civility, how can we cope? We begin, she says, by accepting our flaws and embracing our humanity. Yes, these are times of great illness and distress, she says, yet the center may just hold. Anne Lamott is a New York Times bestselling author. That latest book, as I mentioned, Dusk, Night, Dawn. And uh, this conversation it was first broadcast in March. I want to uh, just quote a couple sentences here. This really struck me. This is from the Big Heart, near the end of the book. Um, and you're out at a retreat, I think, um, and you meet this couple. You, you really like the woman. You're not wild about the husband. And then there's a... In, at least potentially embarrassing incident where you bust into their room by mistake. Um, so, the, oh, yeah, yeah. So, so the next morning you hope that they don't show up, uh, you know, for breakfast, but of course they do. There they are. And uh, she, she, she comes over to you. Uh, I'll quote this. She looked at me with such kindness that I teared up and prayed frantically for her to leave. She touched my hand, rubbed my knuckles, and then turned to go to be looked at that way from someone's heart can change you molecularly. If you're not careful. That's a, that's yeah. powerful, actually really seeing each other, right?
1: Yeah, and looking at each other with love instead of, uh, you know, I had burst into her room drunk in the middle of the night, and... Um, and covered with mud. <laughs> I'd fallen off a cliff, which I will leave to your um, listeners to read this whole story by themselves. And uh and she didn't look at me and roll her eyes and or she didn't look at me and give me a little pep talk on alcoholism or, or or where she thought I might be able to um you know get go into rehab. She just touched my hand and she looked at me really gently. It was so weird. Uh you know my church, um and I, when we're not in quarantine, do uh, have a convalescent home ministry at this one joint, about half hour away. And really, what we do, there's, well, there might be three of us that go. We're a church of thirty, and there'll be twenty people there, and in various states of ruin you know and um and we'll just touch it we'll just touch people's hands or i'll touch people's faces with the back of my hand i'll say i am so glad to see you because no one else is going to be saying that to them that day you know and then we sing with them which is another really subversive way to change everybody's hearts and minds that singing does something for us that really nothing else can do gets in so deep into us doesn't it and um, and so that's what that woman did that day when and uh, and uh, it changed me. Of course, her husband glared at me. I said I described him as looking at me like a reptile, but um, that was not my problem. That was his. <laughs>
0: um, you are um, not only just popular on the coasts. You, you describe yourself as uh, you know left wing. In fact, in one interview, you describe yourself as an extremely left wing Christian. Um, and so my question pertains to, you You do have a lot of fans in what we euphemistically and patronistically call flyover country, uh, red states. Probably, uh, you know, some of your fans are, are Trump supporters. Uh, so I, my question is, how do you... Uh, you know if you, if you had a chance to be open I don't know if, if politics comes up but uh, you know when you when you go out and give presentations but how do we bridge this divide it, it seems like more and more we just can't even talk to each other
1: but I think we're starting to you know I I, I have two friends who are very very conservative uh, and my older brother is, is a uh, really born-to-die fundamentalist, and I'm more of a progressive, do-gooder, um, sort of activist, sort of feed women and children kind of person, but um, I have two very, very conservative friends, and um, and they were heartbroken, like everyone was, by the last year, by both COVID and by the um, the response and the Um, the grief and the just extreme confusion of it all. And so we are able to talk about what we together might do to help alleviate some of the you know, the extreme division and hostility that, you know, this country split down the middle of 50-50. I'll tell you one thing I really recommend is medicine, and this book was written by Arlie Hochschild, and I think it's called Strangers in Their Own Land. I'm almost positive. And it's from a few years ago, and it's during the, I think, early years of Trump. And she goes to, um, I think, I'm so sorry, I read it a long time ago, but I think it's... um, uh, Louisiana, and wait, where's Baton Rouge again? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, Louisiana. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. <laughs> and and, uh, and she goes into these really small, extremely fundamentalist and conservative enclaves, and she gets to know the people. You know what a concept? She goes to meal. She has meals with them. She goes to church with them. She listens. And it creates such a bridge of love. She's a famous sociologist at UC Berkeley, you know, the, just probably the most liberal um, bastion um, of, uh, that you can think of in America, and the sociology department at UC Berkeley, and they all fell in love because they all just sat and listened to each other, and they shared their experience, strength, and hope, and they cried, and they didn't get into trying to convince each other of their politics. You're never going to, you know? And it doesn't I mean, why would you? And it's just kind of abusive to try to get somebody to believe what you believe. And and another thing is it doesn't work, unfortunately. You know, people always say when you're, um, trying to get somebody to get sober—it's like um, getting in the getting in the mud with a pig and wrestling with a pig, and the pig loves it. And you just end up hurt and dirty. You know, you don't convince a pig to to live a different way. And uh, it's just so crazy for you to do it. It's so crazy for me to push back my sleeves and try to convince people. Say right off the top of my head that uh, of a fifteen dollar an hour minimum wage. I'm not going to abuse people that way. They're reading what I'm reading. They're reading what they're reading. And they get to think what they think. And I get to think what I think. And so I really believe that what Arlie Hochschild did was so profound, which was to show up. I mean, before I turned on Woody Allen years ago, he used to say that 80% of life is just showing up. And I absolutely live by that still. And to show up and to ask people questions, and to listen, not try to change them, to eat with them, to cry with them, to, to worship with them, to hike with them, you know? I mean, to me, it's the most subversive work you could do, and that is, I believe, what is healing, even as we speak, healing this country right now. And this is why I like the title, "Dust Night, Dawn, because I felt that we were in the darkest night America had ever been in. But, you know, I also feel like, first of all, it's springtime, and that helps enormously, but that the dawn is coming, you know. the Things are a little bit different now. And um, and we've been through just a literal nightmare, and um, and we looked around, and we're doing what mr rogers mother always said to do you know you look for the helpers you look for the people who are bringing in food and supplies and um and their own selves to be used and um and helping take care of the people who've been so battered and terrified by by what they've seen or what was done to them or what they felt they lost and so um, it's such a second wind, and, and I do feel like the dawn has come. But I want to tell you one quick thing, too. Um, that People ask where the title came from. Um, I discovered about a year ago that twilight, which is one of my favorite words, means both the dusk, when that very trippy mystical light is fading and we're about to be in the dark of night, and twilight means the dawn, that really trippy, mystical light before dawn actually breaks, and um, and I just love that so much. You know that it's that we cycle through, you know, and that in the in the dark night of the soul, you might remember, or somebody might remind you that the sun always comes up again. So. Um, Anyway, that's the path I'm on. Is really, not, I mean, I do register vote voters guilty as charged, but I register everybody. I don't ask what they're registering as, but that we um, that we listen more and that we look into people's eyes and we say, "Tell me about," or "When do you first remember feeling?" you know, this or that, uh, this hostility towards, or, or you say, you know what, what you just said, I have that exactly, the details are different. I have that same resentment. I have that same lack of forgiveness. I have that same judgment. It's different. The details are different, but I know, isn't it painful? Isn't it painful? And then you laugh together, and then you're halfway home.
0: Yeah, that's, that's very helpful. Uh, you're experiencing this with your friends. You're And I'm experiencing this with
1: my friends, that you,
0: uh,
1: you know, there's just a famous saying in recovery that you don't compare your insides to other people's outsides, because other people's outsides are always sort of um, curated, you know, like people's Facebook pages are curated, so you really only see the good, but that you don't, that the compare, the compare leads to despair, and if you're comparing, you're despairing, and if you are instead listening and, and maybe touching, if you can, again, when, maybe when all this is over, when you're gently touching someone's hand or the side of their face, you're not despairing anymore. You're, um, you're opening, you're softening, you're awakening. And, uh, God, that's a wonderful feeling.
0: Mm. We're uh, coming near the end of t- our time here. But, uh, I just wanted to get to one more thing, and here's really struck me. Um you say I try to help teenagers learn to pay attention attention is caffeine um and then in a in a parenthesis this really strikes me you say the most attentive people i know are bird watchers they're less sleepy as a whole than <laughs> the general population tell me about that
1: well my dad was a bird watcher um and uh and i learn you know and that's where the title of my writing book comes from it bird by bird because my older brother could not get a report done that was due in california it's a fourth grade term the first term paper you ever write and my dad said just take it bird by bird just study one bird in roger tory peterson or audubon book and then draw a picture for me and tell me in your own words about the chickadee or the dark-eyed junco or the great blue heron that's how you write a whole book that's how you write a whole term paper and that is how one way to go through life is to just look at one bird, one bird, and notice it today when you leave your house. And you don't go like, oh, that's kind of a medium red backyard finch. You know, we have all these little tiny red... Well, the males are red. You know, the little finches, uh, the the girl finches are all in these horrible gray sweat clothes. But we have a lot of males popping around in the bright red. And you study one bird. What could you find out about finches today? Or even you don't even have to find out. You just look. You just gaze, then they fly off, and you're happier. I said in some book or other that if birdsong were the only evidence we have that there's a greater reality, an invisible reality, maybe a more true reality, it would be proof enough for me that you do it one bird at a time.
0: Mm. Uh, Well, finally, uh, Anne Lamott, uh, I know usually once a book is out, you're probably working on something else. What What are you working on?
1: Well, I'm theoretically
0: working on something yeah. else, but um, I never get much work done for the two or three
1: months before publication because you just get so anxious and so, and also um, all the magazines have a lead time of a couple of months or three months, so you're already starting um, promotion, and which is like my least favorite thing about life is tooting my own horn. I actually really hate it, and um, but I have an idea. Um, And I've been been taking down, I've been writing these little passages, you know, just like what I can see that day through the one-inch picture frame. I can see this one vision. I can see one memory of being out at Inverness with my Uncle Don when I was six years old. I can see this one um, story taking place in an elevator when I'm with the one person I refuse to ever forgive and the elevator breaks, right? And I'm with them in the elevator. I can do that. It's two pages. So I've been doing these two-page things, and if if you held a gun to my head, I could not tell you what it will turn out being. You know, I... Uh, I don't know what the future holds but I know who holds the future and I know at some point something this is my I just this Dust Night Dawn is my nineteenth book. And something I don't even know what you'd call it. Holy Spirit or the creative energy or the the Como Sidd will tug on the sleeve of my shirt that I'm wearing and and it'll say, Let's do it why don't we try a novel? It's been a while or it'll say, Why don't we do one more book, one of these faith books? And I'll go, Okay I'm in, and that's how it works.
0: Well, we'll look forward to that, and in the meantime, uh, uh, Dusk, Night, Dawn on Revival and Courage is out uh, and available everywhere. Uh, Anne Lamott, always uh, a pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I really enjoyed talking to you. I hope you have a good day.
0: You you too, you too, and uh, thank you. Always want to talk to Anne Lamott. Uh, appreciated uh, her taking some time with us. Uh, that uh, conversation first broadcast in March. Anne Lamott is author, of course, of New York Times bestsellers Hallelujah Anyway. Thanks, uh, help, thanks, wow. Small victories, some assembly required. Grace eventually. Uh, operating instructions and the latest there. We talked about dusk, night, dawn on revival and courage. We are going to uh, hear uh, a news story uh, next from the UPR uh, team, which will serve uh, this news story as a preview of tomorrow's Axis Utah. Uh, conservation groups have filed a lawsuit against the Interior Department to prevent a highway from being built through Red Cliffs National Conservation Area. The groups claim that paving over the protected land would be a violation of bedrock environmental laws, which require agencies to analyze potential environmental harms before making decisions. UPR's Kaylee Foster reports.
4: Tom Butine is the president of Conserve Southwest Utah, an environmental group in St. George.
3: We protected this land for a purpose, and now we're saying that purpose isn't valid anymore. So it's kind of saying, well, it doesn't really matter what is protected anywhere in the county. If you can get a friendly enough federal government, and if you can cobble together some reasons that can be passed off as logical, then you can do anything you want on any land, anywhere.
4: Red Cliffs was established as a conservation area in 2009 to help recover the endangered species, the Mojave Desert tortoise. Butine says that anything done in the conservation area needs to benefit the tortoises. Highways, he says, can be one of the worst things for them, and the location of this highway could impact the tortoise's habitat.
3: The area they want to put the highway through is the best and most successful habitat anywhere for this tortoise. Tortoises don't know what to do with highways. They can't get across them. They can't get
4: over them. The main purpose of this lawsuit is to prevent the highway from being built.
3: If a local government can disregard the Endangered Species Act and can disregard the purposes of protected land here, it means any local government anywhere can do it. So it, it really starts chipping away at some really basic
0: environmental protections.
4: With Utah Public Radio, I'm Kaylee Foster.
0: Thanks, Kaylee. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about this, talk about the lawsuit, the Mojave Desert tortoise, traffic congestion, livable communities, smart growth, and climate action. Uh, that's our subject for tomorrow on Access Utah, and we hope you'll join us then. In the meantime, thanks for listening to Access Utah, and we'll go out as we always do on Wednesdays with Beehive Archive.
4: It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. Laundry day. Hate it or love it, it is easier to do now than it ever has been. Today, learn how one Utah family washed their clothing before indoor plumbing. First this. I'm Jody Graham, director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T.D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. In the 1900s, before the luxuries of rural electricity and indoor plumbing, washing clothes was a physical and time-intensive chore for many Utahns. Generally, people owned fewer clothes, so wash day occurred only once per week. Wealthy families could avoid this work by paying for their wash to be done out of the house. But for most households, laundry required the entire family to work together. At the Munson family home in Escalane, wash day began early with gathering firewood. Older boys would chop while younger ones gathered tree limbs for the outdoor fire. Children filled the wash bins from a nearby well and placed them over the fire. The hard water needed to be softened so that the soap could lather up. To do this, women boiled the water and sprinkled lye into it. This caused a hard scum to rise to the top. Once this was scraped off, the water was ready to use. Fortunately for the Munsons, they had a gasoline-powered washing machine to help with the wash. Soap, made from animal fats and lye, sat in thick chunks ready to be grated into the first tub of prepared water. The second tub was for white clothes and linens, which were boiled to loosen the dirt and help keep them white. The soapy water was then poured into the machine, and a foot pedal, or crank, was used to start the motor that agitated the clothes. Although the Munsons remember the washer being unreliable, it was better than scrubbing their dirty clothes against a washboard. By the 1930s, wash day had changed significantly for families like the Munsons. Indoor plumbing, electricity, and the introduction of electric washing machines eased the burden of laundry day. Water poured from a tap in their homes, which meant they no longer had to walk to a well or boil and prepare water for washing. Thanks to these changes, the longest trip most Utahns now make for laundry is to Mom's house or the nearest laundromat. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahhumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. My name is Andy Keller. I wake up to Utah Public Radio in the morning to 89.5.
0: My name is Lee Austin and I worked here for many years as program director and now happily retired and living and listening to UPR mostly in Wayne County at 94.5 FM.